Hello and welcome to The Canyonist. My name is Kamau Wairuri. In this episode, I host Eugene Gumi, a public affairs consultant in Nairobi, to discuss the politics of the Standard Gauge Railway, the SGR, in Kenya. We discuss how the idea of constructing the SGR emerged in the Kibaki era and who the main actors were at that time. We then proceed to discuss how the Jubilee government implemented the project and some of its implications on the political economy of development in Kenya. We also discuss what the implications of this project and this approach that the Jubilee government has taken to infrastructural development might be uh, for future governments. As always, for guests and topic recommendations, reach me on kamau.wairuri at outlook.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Eugene, to The Kenyanist. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, so this conversation is about the SGR, um, and I'm very glad to have you on, on, on the podcast to discuss um, this massive development project that has been taking place in Kenya over the last few years. Um, and so this conversation is based on, on your own research work for, for your master's dissertation about, about the political economy of the SGR. Um, so in a previous conversation here, um, I in fact, the first episode of this podcast, um, I had Melissa who um, we discussed about the politics of street naming in Nairobi. And we began with the idea that Nairobi emerged from the construction of the old railway, which is, you know, the Lunatic Express. And this is something you highlight in your in your own research, where you talk about Kenya's economy um, being originally built around the railway. I want you to to give us a little bit of that of that historical background. So yes, it was it was even if you look at, at Kenya's geographic economy along what we call the, the northern corridor, so Mombasa, Nairobi, Eldoret, Kisumu into Uganda, it follows the old the old railway line, uh, which was actually originally called the the Uganda Railway before it was changed to the to the East Africa Railway, um, and you know that was originally opened in 1901. Um, by the British, also at great cost. In fact, at such great cost that the Imperial British East Africa Company that originally built the railway couldn't sustain itself financially and it eventually became the, 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 East, the Kenya and Uganda protectorate and, and the British government took it over as a full colony not, not long afterwards. Um, but that original line um, was constructed around the idea of extracting resources from Uganda, where Uganda was seen as the pearl of, of, of Africa, um, in East Africa, and, and Kenya was a way to get there. And um, eventually Kenya's economy grew up around the railway. So uh, towns such as Nairobi, Nakuru, uh, were central to the railway as, as stops before, you know, big climbs or, 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 or um, de de declines in the Rift Valley. And um, around those towns and elements of the railway, you got uh, parts of the farming economy. So tea, coffee, all of that used to go on the railway um, to Mombasa to be, to be shipped out, sisal, pyrethrum, uh, all of the cash crops that, that the Kenyan economy was originally built um, around. So up until the 80s, 
um, when it really went into decline with lack of investment, corruption, um, and and during the the Moy regime, up until the 80s, it was it was central. Uh, in fact, if you go to to Kenya Railways headquarters, uh, they still have the old telephone which had a direct line to State House because the railway was so important to the country and and thus it needed a direct line to, to the president or previous to that the governor i'm just thinking to myself right now one of the the things that interesting about that particular history is we talk about the straight line that goes you know basically from mombasa all the way um to the ugandan border and and straight through to, to uganda i have never actually had an explanation as to why we've got another line that goes to Nanyuki. And at what point did that line actually emerge? So as the railway grew and, and Kenya's economy grew and the settler economy became a thing, so to speak, so you started particularly after World War One, attracting the British government, attracting old soldiers to come and settle and farm in Kenya, um, a lot of branch lines um, started being built out to these agricultural areas. So Nyanyuki, to get agricultural goods and coffee out of the Nyeri area. Uh, you've got a branch line into Kericho uh, for tea, um, because you know in the 19, late 1900s, 1920s is when you started getting the big commercial tea companies. I think Finlay's, for example, started up in Kericho in the 1920s. Um, so you've got these branch lines that go out to now these areas of new economic activity. And it sort of reinforces the centrality of the railway because, you know, for you to be part of the wider, you know, colonial economy, you had to be connected to the railway. So if you were growing tea in Kericho, you needed to be connected to the railway in order for that to be to be viable. So that's where those those branch lines eventually came out from is the fact that the economy grew and these new areas were identified, but they needed to be connected to the railway in order to be economically viable. Okay, so as you were saying in the 1980s um you know things start going south and this is not just happening to the railway sector it's happening in in most of the other sectors and because the government was quite a huge player um in the in the economy in terms of like we grew up you know talking about parastatos parastatos were everything you know you had the kenya post and telecommunications um, corporation, for instance, in charge of postal and um, telephone communications, and or everything was was done through this this parastatos. Um, but at this time, what we are seeing as well, you know, on top of what's happening in the country, is we are seeing the introduction of structural adjustment programs, and I don't know whether there's a sense of how the intervention of the World Bank and the IMF um, alongside internal factors shapes what happens with the with the railway beyond the 1980s and going into the in, into the into the 1990s so the effect wasn't direct in terms of um, they were not the government was not forced or pushed to privatize Kenya railways in the same way it was for instance with Kenya Airways um, under the structural adjustment programs. But with the liberalization of the economy comes the ability of um, sectors like the trucking sector to now start offering logistics and transport services where previously that had been uh, not only dominated by the railway, but de facto monopolized by the railway, 
right? So now as a trucker, you're able to go to the tea companies and say, or to KTDA, who previously would have been forced to use the railway and say, you know, we can truck your tea down from the factory um, in the Rift Valley down to Mombasa at a much cheaper price um, and more efficiently than you're able to get on the railway. So um, that opening up, that privatization, that liberalization wasn't directly on the railway itself, but um, it allowed um, other logistics and transport services to come in, um, who frankly were more efficient, right? It's, it's very similar to what happened with, with public transport in, in the cities with Matatus, where as public transport services fell apart, you know, these private players stepped in to, to fill that gap. That's interesting. So the, there's no direct attack on the on the railway, but somehow the forces of the economy in terms of people being able to then transport their their goods in different ways, then you know, creates an entirely different different kind of sector. But yet the railway remains central to the imaginary of development and the economy in Kenya. So by the time um, Mwai Kibaki is coming into office with the NAC government in 2002. Um, and they start thinking about, um, you know, this develop grand development ideas of, you know, taking Kenya to middle economy, middle income status by, by 2030. Um, the railway is still quite central to the imagination of this. So tell us what happens at this at this point and how the idea of rail transport is reimagined. Yeah, so the first thing the Kibaki government tries is, is to concession out the railway, um, to sort of revive it with, with private sector know-how and, and money, which ends up being disastrous because initially it's concessioned out to a briefcase South African company who essentially run away with the money. Um, and then the whole process is, is redone uh, it's quite controversial. Don't want to get into that with Transcentury and everything that happened there. Um, uh, and then the concession is redone and the railway sort of starts up again, but it never reaches its former glory um, in terms of what the government was really looking to do in terms of reviving rail transport as a means for moving, particularly goods, not so much people, but goods um, around the country, particularly for export and, and import. Um, so then you get Vision 2030 uh, coming to the scene. Around 2008, we have the Kenya We Want conference, uh, where you know all these ideas get put on the table and then eventually synthesized into, into Vision 2030. And a big part of Vision 2030 is, is transport infrastructure, is uh, development of the various transport corridors. So you know, revitalization of the railway is key to revitalizing the northern corridor. Um, as it's called in, 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 in infrastructure parlance. And then you've obviously got Lapset in the north. Um, and, you know, and it's seen as key because part of Vision 2030 is to um, really position Kenya as the logistics um, hub, a hub for services, goods, logistics in the region, um, so that you're able to move goods and services um, to everywhere from Somalia all the way around the region through, you know, South Sudan, Ethiopia, DRC, Uganda, down into Tanzania and Rwanda. Um, and the revitalization of, of this corridor is key, particularly for getting to Uganda and the DRC. And the DRC, with all its resources, is, you know, opening up that corridor to eastern DRC would be an enormous boon to the country. 
uh, in terms of you know having those exports coming through through Kenya. So that's how it's 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 re-envisioned and reimagined, uh, and that's when the debate opens up around: Do we try again and revitalize the old railway, or is it now necessary to build something completely new? And so in this discussions emerges this idea of a standard gauge railway. Now, before I ask you to talk about how this gets conceptualized, it's very interesting to me, and I I do remember this from my secondary school days, that in geography, we studied this railway. So we talked about, you know, the the old railway and how it was built and constructed in, in, in the classes. And then there was a segue in this lessons towards um, a discussion about the standard gauge railway. And the idea was that this was more efficient, this was more accepted universally. So we, I remember I left the these lessons with the idea already in you know in in my mind that we would solve all of Kenya's railway problems if we built a standard gauge railway which is to say um that politically speaking this conversation had had been happening for quite a long time so tell us how it actually now comes into um into the imaginary of like this is now a policy that we are including into this um, into the vision 2030 um, by the time, you know, Kibaki is, is, is coming to leave office. Yes. Yeah, so actually, the SGR story actually starts in, in 2009 when um, there's a proposal to do a feasibility study. Uh, and, and this is brought to the table. You know, now you've got this grand coalition government. Um, so as Prime Minister, Raila comes in with a bunch of allies uh, Kenya We Want has happened in mid to late 2008 after, um, you know, sort of post-election violence has died down and the government has been constituted and you've now got Vision 2030 and, you know, at least the idea that the this central port, this northern corridor should be revitalized is, is part and parcel of that. So 2009 is when you get the proposal that a feasibility study be done. Um, and this is often the, the first step in terms of, of, of infrastructure projects because they have to be justified, right? You can't just say, I want to build a railway here. Well, why, right? Will it, will it carry the volumes? Will people use it? Uh, will it make money? Um, will it have the impact you want it to have? So a feasibility studies is proposed by the China Road and Bridges Corporation, CRBC, uh, who eventually end up building it, which is now a procurement problem later on down the line. Um, but they're brought to the table by people who are politically connected to the administration now. So you've got, you know, politically connected businessmen saying, uh, you know, let's build a railway, but okay, let's do a feasibility study. So the government comes to an agreement with, with CRBC to do a feasibility study in 2009, not for the construction of a standard gauge railway, but for the construction of an electric railway, uh, which is, which is interesting. So it's sort of, thinking about shifting away from, you know, the idea of a modern railway for a modern Kenya um, was electric at the time, not, not necessarily a, a standard gauge railway. And that process takes about, about three years. And that feasibility study is then submitted in, in 2012. So now you're getting towards the, the end of the Kibaki administration. Um, so it originated in that administration, but it was never really something that was on the cards 
that they were actually thinking about doing. Kibaki was much more interested in obviously thicker road and things like that, but oh, you know, that's when Lapset was launched, and he's he was always a great proponent of Lapset going back to the 60s. You're getting things like Konza, um, which he made sure to launch as well. Um, so, you know, while this project was there, it was, and it was in the plans, it was never like a priority um, um, for Kibaki. Um, so in 2012, you get, you get the feasibility study, and that is then what forms the basis of discussions when the Jubilee administration comes in um, in, in 2013 to start talking to the Chinese government about um, how do we fund this? How do we how do we full, pull this off? And I think you know there's two very important changes that happen um, there as well. Thanks, Eugene, for that um, very interesting background into the SGR. So now we get into the you know the the Kibaki regime comes to an end in in 2013. Um, and then the Jubilee government led by, by Uhuru Kenyatta and, and, and William Ruto is elected into, into office. And the SGR now becomes quite central to, the, to this government's agenda. Um, tell us how this happens and whether there's any um, or, or what linkages there are between the Jubilee government and, and the Kibaki government. So the linkages between the two are, are, are numerous. So obviously, you know, um, Kenyatta was part of the Grand Coalition government. He was deputy prime minister. He was minister of finance. So he would have known this feasibility study was happening. Um, uh, Treasury would have had to sign off on, you know, paying for the feasibility study. So you'd have known it existed. The second linkage is, is now those politically connected uh, businessmen or business people. Um, you know, central to that story is is is, is Jimmy Wanjigi, who's you know who had helped bring CRBC to the table for the initial feasibility study, and was also part of the group of people that brought Ruto and Uhuru together in 2012-2013 to sort of form this this jubilee coalition that eventually ran for the presidency in in, in 2013. Um, you know, so as they're writing their manifesto and thinking about what can be our marquee projects, um, you know, the railway is part and parcel of that manifesto because, you know, it's part of the interests of part of the group that put them together, that's helped funding in this campaign. So it's always there or thereabouts. But, um, you know, as they get into power, they now need their own marquee projects. They now need their own signature projects. It's not just a matter of carrying on whatever Kibaki was doing. They need to make their mark, so to speak. So that's where now SGR becomes really prominent because it was already in the manifesto. There's already a feasibility study that's been done. So it's it's now not hard to move that from you know a, a concept, there's a feasibility study, to actual negotiations with with the Chinese government. It's CRBC who did the, the feasibility study. So now accessing the funding from Exim Bank in China is, 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 is eased through, through that path. And then critically as well, uh, don't forget 2013 is when China launches uh, its, 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 um, the, the uh, BRI initiative, the, the um, New Silk Road as, as, as they called it. Um, and that is, is critical because it's right at the time, that One Belt initiative, it's right at the time that they're looking for funding. And this is a project that falls really well into that narrative 
of you know China financing infrastructure that connects not just Kenya, but um, the original plan was Uganda to the DRC as well, um, to this global One Belt uh, initiative um, and to global markets. So it, it fits perfectly into that narrative. So there's a willingness in Beijing as well to, to sign off on this on this project um, at the same time. So there was that connection to the Kibaki administration, but it was also perfect timing, um, not of their own design, but it was perfect timing for the Jubilee administration to be looking for, for the funding that they needed for the project. And is this the point at which there's now a shift from, you know, the initial grand ideas of, you know, electric um, railway to, you know, the standard gauge railway, or does this shift happen you know, before? Um, so a standard gauge railway can still be an electrified railway. There's, there's, there's nothing um, that prevents it from being so. Uh, but the, the shift is because, you know, the cost implications of making it a fully electrified railway would be significant, uh, especially a railway of that length and, and scope. Um, so the idea is, is, you know, and the government talked about this initially, was it'll start off as a standard gauge railway and then in time, it will be electrified as you know the government builds its 5,000 megawatts or whatever the, the case, the, the other big marquee jubilee program was. So it's fitting into a much broader development imaginary of the jubilee government, which is intent on building things, right? Because it, for some reason, um, there is a, there's a challenge in that the Kibaki government got the credit for building things for the first time in a long time. And so do you sense that Jubilee is is now thinking we don't only continue building, as you were saying, but we've got to do things on a much larger scale. But then we also need to to show that we are connecting different things, even though we know that things don't always work this way and every project has its own issues, that, you know, the idea that everything is connected. So, yeah, that, that's that's part of the thinking. It's, um, you know, as you mentioned, Kibaki was was much acclaimed for building things and, and there was now an idea that's very deeply ingrained within government and development thinking, not just in Kenya, but across the continent, that, you know, of infrastructure as development, building things is, is, is critical because it shows that you're doing development. Um, so there's that element as well. Um, they want their own things, right? As I said, they don't just want to continue Kibaki's projects, which will always be associated with him. You know, they want things that speak to, you know, we as Jubilee have done X, Y, or Z, um, which is important for re-election five years down the line, but also, you know, for their own political um, um, legacies. And um, yes, you know, Kenya has a history of, uh, you know, bureaucraticness or, or legal bureaucracy. That means that, you know, you have to be able to justify these things. Um, you know, so saying we need 5,000 megawatts of power because we've got a 900 kilometer railway to power um, is a way of justifying, you know, the need for these projects. Um, it's, 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 you have to be able to, to do that um, historically within, within Kenya's space, even as far back as Turkwell, uh, even though it was called a white elephant, it was, if you read the documents, it was still justified as necessary power station, etc. So it's, that is an, uh, is, is an important element of, of project development and infrastructure in Kenya. But then the project soon comes into a lot of opposition for 
many different kinds of things. And one of which you had already mentioned is the question of procurement. Despite all this justification and what have you and the processes, the, the process of procurement and the cost of the project becomes such a huge political um, you know, point of discussion. Um, can you summarize this a bit and, and tell us what exactly was happening in this, um, in this debate? Sure. So the project is massive. Just Kenya, East Africa, you know, outside of South Africa, Nigeria and Egypt, you will not find a project of this size and, and scope, particularly at this time. Um, you know, all together, if you put phase one, two and three together, it'll end up costing somewhere in the region of, of nine, ten billion dollars. Right. The first phase was was over was about um, three three point two billion dollars three point six billion dollars sorry so it's it's massive it's absolutely massive and thus so that is one point of contention do we need to be spending this much money and, and you know to put that in in, in context three point six billion dollars is over three hundred and sixty billion shillings right that is if you look at the budget that is the education budget plus the ICT budget right it's it's it's, it's a significant chunk of spending that's never quite been seen. So that's the first point of contention. The second is the way it was procured. So as I mentioned earlier, CRBC are now the people who are building this project, but they're the ones who did the feasibility study. So they have an obvious advantage. But then on top of that, there was no open procurement done around SGR whatsoever. And the government justifies this in court and wins the case eventually in court by saying this is a government to government deal. Therefore, it doesn't need to be procured as per Chapter 12 of the Constitution and the Public Finance Management Act. Uh, but that's always elicited controversy because as a government to government deal, the contract is secret. And there's, there's a bunch of civil society groups in court today trying to get that contract, right? And the president, you know, once famously said he'd, he'd release it and they never have. Um, which always has had everybody wondering what exactly is in this contract that they feel the need um, to hide it as much as they do. So the procurement was always dogged by, by issues. And then, you know, going back to the central issue of the cost is, you know, why was this railway so much more expensive than um, similarly, similar railways um, in other parts of the world? We were, pay we're paying about $5 million per kilometer, which is outrageous uh, when you compare it to projects that CRBC itself has done in other parts of the world that are half or a third of the cost. Interesting. And I, I, I like that you bring out the civil society side of this, um, of this discussion, because one of the central players in revealing some of the key dynamics of this project is Okia Omtata. Um, he goes to court and asks for some information to be provided, which then becomes available to the um, to the public. Tell us a bit a bit about that. Yeah, so Okia goes to court challenging this procurement process, um, and in response, uh, the government through the attorney general um, and the documents and affidavits that they provide actually sheds light on on the details of. Uh, the SGR deal that, you know, never actually came up during the parliamentary debate that approved um, the project. So, you know, things like, you know, so all the detail I was referring to after previously around how the feasibility study was commissioned in 2009 and done in 2012 and done by CRBC, that all comes out in, in the court documents. So even though Omtata doesn't win the case, 
Um, he does manage through you know the simple the simple act of, of having proceedings and hearings on this and and documents being submitted managed to bring to light a lot of detail um, around SGR, which probably would not have come out if, if government had not been forced to do it in court. We thank Comtata for that. Um, now, the other thing that also becomes a huge uh, point of debate is the, and this you, you examined this quite, quite well in your, um, in your research, is the question of the feasibility and viability of the project. So, which is very interesting to think about because as you've said, we have a culture of justifying things as part of the bureaucratic logic of, you know, how we do our things. I mean, if you, even if you look at the, um, the CBC education curriculum change that, that we are going through at the moment, there's tons and tons of documents justifying this and then, you know, everything just goes up, up, up in, the, in, in smoke. Um, what happens with this question of feasibility and viability of the project? So the feasibility study done by CRBC is actually never released publicly. Um, but government uses that to justify, particularly the figures that come out of it, right? That we'll be able to haul X amount of cargo and it will create X amount of jobs and et cetera as, as a key justification um, for the project. But very interestingly is back in, in around 2012, 2013, so around the same timeline, because Kenya is not the only country consider, in East Africa considering revitalizing it, its rail transport systems. Um, the World Bank does a, a study looking at what are the options for revitalizing rail systems in, in, in East Africa? What are the projections of the amount of cargo and, and people they'll be able to move? Um, and what financial implications um, does that have? And so they looked at four options. So just rehabilitating the old railway or uh, which, you know, second would be refurbishing the existing railway. So going along it kilometer by kilometer and making sure and essentially modernizing it. The third option would be taking out the existing railway and then building a standard gauge railway, but on the existing wave. So not doing any new land purchases, but you're essentially replacing what's there. And the fourth option is, is, is the standard gauge railway. The most expensive option, far and away, is the standard gauge railway on a new right-of-way, which is what the government ends up choosing. Um, it's the most expensive option. Uh, it's, it's according to the World Bank study, in terms of investment per kilometer to the estimated returns, it is not justifiable because it'll always cost more than it'll be able to bring back in within a reasonable time period of about 50 years. Uh, but this is the option the government ends up uh, going with. And you know it's it's critical. It's not just the standard gauge railway, but the critical element of this is the new way leave. Is the fact that um, for this new standard gauge railway, the government now has to purchase all of this land, uh, which is a massive opportunity for rent seeking and, and corruption, and you know, and there've been several court cases around that. But it's also a lot of people made a lot of money. Uh, because of the land purchases around SGR. And I think, you know, that, and it's one of the elements as well that severely increased the price that we were paying per kilometer for this project as well. And that's never been ideally explained by government in terms of why they couldn't use existing way leaves that Kenya Railways already has um, to build the railway rather than having to buy, to, to buy new land in its entirety. Yeah, but... So you and I, and then you, you explore this quite quite well in your study, we can then theorize about what's happening here. 
because when we think about infrastructure projects generally in Kenya, and we think about this all across, so either it's at the national level or you know at the CDF um, level, as I was discussing with Ken Opalo in in the last episode, we know that there there's something there's something extra that these projects do. So beyond just um, you know the building of the thing. There's a lot of political interests that are being taken care of through the construction of infrastructure. And this, you know, we can trace all the way back. So I want you to sort of explain how this works and why this is important and how and why the conversation around the politics of infrastructure needs to be understood as beyond just the the building of the thing or the buying of the land or whatever, but then the political dynamics that revolve around it. So, yeah, that's always, you know, infrastructure is, is political, fundamentally. Uh, the, there's always questions around um, not just what gets built, right, because there's, you could look across the country and there's a cornucopia of needs, right? Um, um, infrastructure's development um, may have issues, but, you know, the fact is, Africa, Kenya need infrastructure um, as, as part of our development um, strategy. So the need for infrastructure is well known and it's there. Then the question becomes around what gets built and where, because now that has direct impacts on uh, who builds it, uh, for whom does it get built, and uh, for whom does it does it does it benefit? Um, so you know it's 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 um, there's really good research going back a number of years looking at, at road building across the continent and how areas that support the political leadership, uh, whether it's measured through elections or, 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 or other relationships, tend to get more roads than areas that don't. Um, and, and so that's always the first question is, who are you building infrastructure for? And it's always very interesting that particularly this administration has always used infrastructure as a way to show that it is bringing benefits to the people or particular groups of people or or particular regions um, um, or you know and that that's been an important element of its of its narrative um, and then around that you know comes the question of the political elites and the business elites connected to this so who's actually doing the building of the projects uh, who's getting the subcontracts um, who owns the land on which it's on which it's been built? Because this is also a way, um, you know, to hand out favors, uh, to give people a slice of the cake, so to speak, um, in terms of you know not just which regions or parts of the country benefit from the project, but who specifically, um, whether it's political or business elites, benefit uh, from this project as well. So you know you have to look through through SGR through that lens as well. Uh, not just you know as political theory, but because if you look at the practice of the Jubilee government, that's been a very clear part of their strategy. There's a reason why investment in Kisumu and Nyanza has ramped up significantly um, since the handshake happened in, in, in 2018. The president has explicitly said it when he's gone to inspect new projects in the region, like this is what the handshake has brought you. So it's 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 very much part of Jubilee's political thinking that projects are explicitly tied to politics. The debate is very polarized. 
so that we have people on one side who will take the government position and you know like justify it and on the other side we've got people who are vehemently opposed to the project um but i think there could be a possibility of thinking out of the the sort of quagmire that we are in right in that how do we find or how do we get um some good out of this project seeing as we have already invested so much money into into it so it's it's you know it's one of those projects where at this point in time it's very hard to see any benefits the project has brought to the country the um the cost of construction which i mentioned earlier which even though it's not the full 10 billion dollars is about 5 billion because you know half the project has been built are enormous and because the grace periods are over on the loans those loan repayments are now you know on our books on a year to year basis so you know i think in in this financial year we've paid over 120 billion shillings um to um ex and bank of china as loan and interest payments and you could imagine that money could be used for a lot more things um second is 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 the way in which the project has been designed um and implemented means that it's it's it has not been attractive um for cargo haulage as the government had initially thought it would be um the fact that it doesn't you know um terminate in mombasa or at mombasa port is a significant uh, detractor because now if i'm transporting goods down to the coast i have to take my containers off the train put them onto a truck to get them to the port which is an extra additional cost i might as well put them on a truck from their initial point of origin and just take them to the court to the port entirely so right now it's it's very hard to see how um this railway which is making a loss year on year is 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 of benefit but if government um rethinks its strategy which it which it is starting to do and it is starting to implement um you know the projects that were the the benefits that were initially envisioned could could come through so you've got the government rehabilitating um some of the old branch lines to Kisumu and Nyanyuki and connecting those to the SGR as a way of you know connecting those regions of the country to a railway in order to 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 move goods um which is is partially also due to the fact that the Chinese won't fund the rest of the project um and then you know if the Ugandans come through with their end of the bargain and rehabilitate their line as well um that original intent of opening up Uganda and 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 Eastern DRC to goods exports via the SGR um will be will be will be will come to fruition as well and they're starting to think about the pricing they're talking to industry more as well so you know a really good example is tea last year Kenya exported about 500 million tons of tea tea is a good that doesn't need to move quickly you can put it on a train and it gets put on a ship um but they haven't been using SGR because the costs are too high um and this is Kenya's biggest physical export so now is when they're starting to talk to the industry and see what can we do to make this valuable and viable for you so in the long term if 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 the shifting in government continues to think along the uh, along the lines that it is um the project could have benefits but but right now it is it is very hard to see you know after about 5 6 years of operation how this this railway is is benefiting the country so i have several questions from what you've just said um and maybe i'm going to ask two of them and see whether you're able to give an answer that that brings the the two dimensions together so on the one hand there's this question of revamping the old 
um, the old lines. And these lines obviously don't don't link into the SGR in the same way. So um, it means that we might just be going back to the original starting point, which is like just fix the old railway and then and use that, right? And then you're saying that on the Uganda side, they, you know, will probably be revamping their old railway, which then means it doesn't really link into the SGR, right? So we are talking about, about revamping the old one. So I don't understand why we still need um, the SGR. And that leads to my next question, which is, might we end up with a... Uh, SGR becoming a white elephant or being, you know, like a stranded asset. We put in the money, we paid, we, the thing is here, We've, we are paying for it, but it ends up being um, meaningless in the, in the long term. So that's, that's definitely a risk if the government doesn't, you know, put in place a strategy that makes SGR more viable and attractive for people and companies to use. Um, in, in my view, the, the rehabilitation of the old elements of the line is, is for me, the biggest indictment of the project as a whole, right? Because, um, for example, the Nyanyuki section, which is about 240 kilometers, cost 1.8 billion shillings um, to re rehabilitate. The Kisumu section, which is about 218 kilometers, but more difficult terrain, cost about 3.8 billion shillings. Um, so all told, you're talking about 5 billion shillings to rehabilitate, um, you know, close to 500 kilometers of line, which is a tenth of what, you know, a similar length of line from Nairobi to Mombasa, which is on a flatter section of, of you know, flat, a relatively flat um, um, terrain um, cost. So, you know, there's an obvious um, um, difference between the two, which, which shows that, you know, we very probably did go down the wrong path in, in choosing to build um, SGR on a, on a new way lead. Um, they, part of the project with the new um, um, line, with the rehabilitated lines, is is to connect them to SGR. Um, it'll be somewhat inconvenient because you'll have to move, you know, from one track to another. Um, but it, it is part of the thinking that they're putting in there. And you know, um, Uganda is, is having to rehabilitate its old line because they can't get funding from the Chinese to finish S, to do their own SGR. Uh, much in the same way that Kenya can't get the financing from China to finish the SGR project as envisioned, to now go from Naivasha, where it's terminated, through to Kisumu and then Malaba at the border. Um, so, you know, the fact is, is the Chinese are now not interested in funding this project any further, um, partially because, you know, the way they conceive of, of BRI has changed the, 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 the One Belt project. And, you know, secondly, uh, you know, because the finances aren't making sense. Um, as I mentioned, the project is, is, is financially burdensome on Kenya and would only be more so if we'd gotten that additional funding. And, and it's unclear as to whether it will be able to make a profit at any time in the near, near future. So you can see why they're hesitant to, to give additional funding. Um, so it, it could indeed end up being a massive white, pro a white elephant project, um, you know, unlike I'd like, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be like Turkwell, which was criticized, much criticized at the time of its building for being a white elephant, but still today provides a significant amount of power onto the grid and, 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 the, and over time has actually paid itself back. But, um, you know, hopefully SSGR is similar 
you know, and I say this as a taxpayer myself, because if not, then we'd have spent a lot of money on on, on something um, where there's a lot of other competing priorities. Yeah, it's a bit sad when we've got to keep our fingers crossed and, and rely on, on, on hope for such a massive, massive project. Um, so the other thing that this raises in my mind is a worry about the political implication of this kind of projects and this this approach to policy making, right? Um, because at the core of this and the conversation we've had so far is the idea that, you know, the guy who came before me did something big. And now that I'm here, I've got to do something bigger, right? So I worry about, because the Jubilee government's time is coming to an end in a few months' time, and we get a new government coming in, either, you know, it's going to be Azimio or or Kenya Kwanzaa. Um, and I'm, well, it could be others, the other presidential candidates. Um I would be very nervous if they're going to come and tell us, look, I'm also going to do bigger things so that I can build, you know, my my legacy. Do you see this as, as a potential implication of this of this project or do you think um, we have learned our, our lessons? I think absolutely the next president will want to do, will want to have their thing, I think. Um, it's, it's the thing they'll get judged by, um, or at least that's how they see it. Um, but also it's a way of, you know, you forget that, you, know, you mustn't forget that presidents come into office with a whole bevy of people and interests that supported them to get to that point, who will then need, you know, to be able to show or, or to see some benefit coming out of that. And, and, and so there'll be that element um, of things as well. Um, what I think is, is, is very interesting is that it may not necessarily be an infrastructure project. Um, so you've got, you know, the Azimil coalition talking about, you know, a social welfare cash payment program um, or universal health care as, you know, its big marquee um, project, uh, which is which is, you know, sort of shifting away from the infrastructure narrative and and back to what we had at the start of, of the of the Rainbow Coalition with, with education. Um, you know, you've got. Um, You've got Kenya Kwanzaa with the hustler narrative talking about investing in, in hustlers and, and, and tens of billions of shillings being given to hustlers and small businesses and et cetera. So I think, you know, the next president will definitely have their own marquee project. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that project may not necessarily be an infrastructure project. Brilliant. And I think that's an excellent place to end the conversation. Thanks, Eugene, for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's the show. Thanks for listening. In case you have any questions or comments or guest and topic recommendations, please email me on kamau.wairuri at outlook.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram. You can also help the podcast grow by rating us wherever you get your podcasts and sharing with others who might find it interesting. Till next time, goodbye.